I mean, there, there's a whole racket around sort of this sort of fake news thing. But this is actually a business, right? And so, and, and it's a business where you, you have, there's a lot of skill, there's a lot of craft. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Joey Ito is the director of the MIT Media Lab. The lab is working to develop online defenses to combat fake news. In today's show, Ito talks about how it's an example of our increasingly complex world. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Is there a spam filter for fake news? Not yet, but Joey Ito, along with other tech giants, are working to build one, or something like one. Ito says efforts are underway to create algorithms and use artificial intelligence to counteract fake news and enhance real news. Fake news is one of many modern-day challenges. How do we navigate a world where truth is sometimes buried and the future is less predictable? Ito says being alert and agile will help people live in an age of rapid change. He writes about it in his book, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. Ito is an advocate for emergent democracy, privacy, and internet freedom. He spoke with Aspen Institute President and CEO Walter Isaacson at the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series in late January. Their conversation starts with Ito's book. Here's Isaacson. You start with the scene of the train, the moving train in the film. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Yeah, so the Luminaire brothers who uh, in- invented film, and uh, it, 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 the point really was that uh, when the when the motion picture first came out, first of all, it was sort of a, it seemed like a big deal, but then it takes about 10 years before we realize that we can uh, do a close-up because everybody feels like it will probably uh, uh, give people some sort of weird disconnect vertigo. or ver- ver- vertigo. And if you remember the early days of television where a radio re- uh, reporter is just sort of sitting there f- framed. And so man- many of the media, when something new happens, there's a, Kind of a, and there's, I think it's called Amara's Law, I think, which is that you over anticipate the short term and under under anticipate the long term. And so a lot of the changes that are happening today, you sort of are based on technologies that have kind of been introduced a little while ago, and then they really hit. And and, and the weird thing is, we came up with the title before uh, the election season started, so it was it was (laughs) it wasn't meant to be so uh, timely. But uh. although it is timely, because you talk about emergence Mm -hmm. as a concept. And in some ways, there's been both a whiplash and a backlash in our political system. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, if weirdly the the way that Donald Trump has sort of played this whole uh, his strategy is very much the way you would do it if you had read this book, which is really about kind of uh, being always aware. Not having you know having scenarios, but not really trying to overplan everything, and being highly responsive and iterating based on what you know, and is really more about sort of surfing a wave than um, you know pl- planning a, a campaign in sort of a, a, a structured way. And and so so and, and the book really is about a lot of these trends uh, coming to a point now where the, the world becomes extremely unpredictable, and if you're agile and and small, you'll you're more likely to survive. But you talk about the issue of emergence over authority. Yeah, yeah. 
explain what that means, but also now how that applies to our politics. Yeah, so, so emergence, uh, I first learned about it in Stephen Johnson's uh, great book called Emergence, where he talks about, for instance, ant colonies, where uh, the, you know, ant colonies do very smart things. Like they, can, they will make sure that the, the dumpster, the graveyard, is very far from the food, which is very far from the entrance of their nest. And they can do, and bees can do very complex geometry. And each individual bee or ant can't, doesn't know the whole of it, but as a, as a hive, uh, they can, or a colony, they can be very smart. And, 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 and Tom Malone's the head of the uh, Center for Collective Intelligence, sort of similar. You have societies, you have um, uh, many systems that are complex that are smarter than the sum of the parts. And emergence is this kind of idea that um, given certain basic parameters, you will start to see order emerge. Um, one of my favorite stories is there's a slime mold, which um, when, it's, when there's food, they're all little cells that are separate. But once the food starts to dry up, they all get together and they turn into something that looks kind of like a slug. And it will become sort of three-dimensional and will start to inch towards where the light is and where the food might be. And then once it gets there, it sort of disperses again. So, so emergence can be things like Arab Spring. It can be a kind of order that comes bottom-up. And, and a lot of times when you talk about bottom-up, you think about sort of not so sophisticated, not self-organizing things like, like uh, direct democracy or, you know, because direct democracy really is kind of like a, a po you think of it as a polling system, right? So like it's a voting system that's direct, but emergence is really how complex self-adaptive systems will uh, uh, have a kind of intelligence. This is, it, it, you know, the, the environment is a self-adaptive, complex self-adaptive system, and, and we don't really know very well how to manage or interact with these systems. And so, so what we're seeing, I think, with the internet and any other system that starts to connect and allow itself to create these new loops and feedback systems is you start to see behavior that comes um, bottom up. And, and I think a lot of managing the future is instead of trying to organize things, and this is sort of obvious things for people who have been, whether you're in the military or whether you're working in, in online marketing, you, you realize that you can't command and control from the top or from the center anymore, you really need to be able to sort of respond to things coming up. And, and, and again, this isn't really a new idea. We had, we've had innovation on the edges since you know, um, the, the field engineer at 3M uh, invented uh, masking tape. So, so it's not a new thing, but what we're, what we're seeing is at a completely different scale and at a completely different speed than we've seen before. You've talked about the slug and the biology you know, metaphor. Is it more than just a metaphor? I mean, is there things to learn from biology we can apply to emergent systems? Yeah, so, so there's actually a, a number of sort of uh, scientific methods around this. The, the, I think if you go back to Jay Forrester or um, um, uh, uh, Donella Meadows, who did uh, in the early days the, the climate models for the Club of Rome, those were complex self-adaptive systems that have a lot of the behaviors of that. So systems dynamics is sort of a field that's looked at systems that, that self-heal, that, that, that emerge and, and, and sort of are collectively intelligent. Um, and and it's, it's been sort of, it's, it's, it's not metaphorical. And that's how, you know, the early models of how climate works or how poverty and economy interact. Um, these, these sorts of models have, have been around. The hard thing is not so much modeling them. It's, it's, the hard thing is actually uh, uh, influencing them. Mm -hmm. Because you do one thing, but you can't really predict the outcome. And it's really about how do you stay responsive. Um, and, and, and even, I think, in, in, in modern, sophisticated military systems, you're, you're really deploying things that go out and have a lot of autonomy. And what I think you need to do is to figure out a system where um, you know, the, the central system doesn't have to know all of it. And in fact, it's really more about um, allowing the system to uh, adapt and, and move very quickly. How did that apply to the Arab Spring, and what do we do wrong? 
So, so I think there are a number of theories. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting with the internet is that it allows uh, this kind of self-organization to happen very quickly. Um, one of the conversations that we've been having is that uh, uh, you can do something like Arab Spring with, with minimal um, infrastructure. So, so the civil rights movement took churches, took humans, took lots of infrastructure. So you have these protests, but once you win the protests, you still have a lot of infrastructure in place to then follow up with the rebuilding and the action. And I think Arab Spring happened so quickly and, it ha and, and, and things toppled very quickly that the, the infrastructure wasn't in place to do it. And then I think the other piece was uh, the rule of law, right? So in, in the United States, if you have the infrastructures, you know, you have Marin Light Ed Edelman becoming a lawyer, and you have, you have all these people, and they were able to then use the rule of law to construct these new institutions, whereas I think in, in, in the Arab world, that, that was also very difficult. How does that apply to the Trump election? Well, so, <laughs> well, so, 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 I, I, so I think that first of all, the, 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 if you look at, so we, we've done a lot of analytics of um, how the, uh, the social media and how the mainstream media connected. For instance, um, in uh, in our lab in the Laboratory for Social Machines, we show that you know you can see the Trump supporters. So if you look at the network, you can see who's influencing who, who's talking to who, and it's very clear that the mainstream media. Uh, wasn't listening to or wasn't even connected to the people who had influence on the network. And there were many coordinated uh, efforts online to that were very sophisticated and very agile. And I think that, and this, I'm just speculating, I don't know the extent to which the campaign even was managing that. I think what they were doing was being very opportunistic about the energy that was coming and, 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 and took, took that. Um, and I think right now, one of the interesting things is, is the idea of these institutions, right? So is this going to be sort of an insurgency that's like an Arab Spring where now can, can they, you know, he rebuild or create his institutions? Or is this sort of a, a, a wave that comes but then um, isn't able to follow through? And, and, and it, obviously there aren't that many parallels because we have a very different set of institutions. And, but, but one of the questions really we'll is, find out. we'll find out. Yeah, but one of the, I think, really interesting questions is going to be, can these institutions become agile and aware of these, uh, how, how to play in this new game in the way that, uh, that, that, that he has? And, and, I, and I think there's some evidence that's, that some of these institutions are trying to move very quickly, but um, I'm not sure whether they'll be able to survive, because they're, they're, they're structured in these traditional uh, top-down ways. You deflected or said you weren't sure to what extent it was intentional and conscious within the Trump campaign mm -hmm. to do that. But can you drill down a bit on that, especially because you probably know more than we do about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I want to be careful <laughs> what I say, but um, but there there are a number of groups who are um, who who are on the internet who just like to have fun, right? And and this is there's a category of of um, uh, of kid or person who's really not into the issues, but they're sort of into sort of the, the the media itself is the playground, and the currency of what gets these kids excited is attention, and so they'll do anything they can do to get under people's skin, which is uh, interesting because you can't get back at them so much because you write about them and they enjoy it, right? So, so this is one of the tricky parts about being a journalist in this game because you used to have a battlefield that you would write about and if you wrote about it in harsh enough terms that would affect the battlefield, well, once the media becomes the battlefield, every time you use your hammer and you try to beat up something bad, you're actually feeding it. Right. right, and so so there's a there is, there's a lot of energy on the internet that gets more powerful the more you write about it and the more you shake your finger at it, and so this created this weird feedback loop, 
And that power sort of got a bunch of kids going and say, hey, wait, we can, we can manipulate this system. We're sort of in charge here. And, and I think, and I think uh, even Donald Trump rightly, because of his agility, was able to take that energy and direct it um, into, into power, into a power base. And that's a very strong power base. There's a great story, uh, I think it was last year in New York Times Magazine, about the the Russian agency, and, and there's a funny little piece in it, which is the sort of thousands of people who uh, work for the Russian government in sort of trolling systems. But the neat thing is that it said that you know they they didn't really empl- they tried to employ them to sort of write good things about um, the government, but it turns out these guys can only write bad things. So yeah. so they, it's a device that can only be pointed as a destructive device, and it's not sort of the traditional propaganda machine. And I think a lot of the and, and I, I won't I won't I don't want to belittle the importance of the Trump voters or, um, or over a- overemphasize this category. But there definitely is a decent chunk of energy on the, on the internet, which is really uh, something that we've never seen before, which is uh, sort of looking at the media and the, and the, the network as a game. And, and, I, and I, I would reflect... As a game, you said. As, as a game and as a thing. So, so I, I used to play a lot of World of Warcraft, which is an online multi-user game, and I, yeah, I played it a lot. And when I was playing it a lot, I remember thinking for a moment that the stuff that I owned in the game um, and my items were more important than anything I owned in the real world. Mm-hmm. And that was probably true for everyone else in my guild, which was a couple hundred kids, right? So, so you think that there's this is reality and online is sort of about reality. But for a lot of kids online and their reputation online and the way people behave with each other, and that's reality. And so, so, so it's, a, it's a slightly different game. So what attracted them to the alt-right online? Well, well it's, 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 it's interesting because I think for them, sort of stuffy, politically correct people who talk in complete sentences and read the New York Times are like a prime um, uh, you know, game boss to go after because these guys have power, they're educated, and, and if you can poke them and get them angry um, and flip them, it's, it's, it's quite entertaining, right? And, and, and if I were that age, maybe I would be into it too. I mean, but, but, it's, a, but it's a game in real life, you know? And so, you know, it's, and it, and it, it's played out online sort of already in, in, in a variety of different types of bullying and things like that, but this is sort of manifested in a different way. So what percentage of the alt-right politically active people in the online or in cyberspace uh, were doing it for pure ideological reasons, do you think? And how many were doing it as a sort of weird... Uh, so, so, so I, I don't. So that's the hard question. I don't know what the percentage is, and I think that what you see is you see people who have legitimate um, political uh, points of view, and you see people who have, you know, somewhat misguided views, and then you have people who are sort of playing for it, playing for fun. But what you're getting is the kids who play for fun. These kids are sophisticated. They're they're the sort of guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. against the red redcoats, right? And so even though that they may have been a minority, mm-hmm. I think they were fairly sophisticated in their ability to sort of help guide this this movement in a particular direction. And, and to what extent were they used by the Russians? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, we and and if I knew, I might not say it. But, Why? <laughs> well, I, you know, because one of the, one of the key things about how these networks and these systems know warfare is about deception, right? And and this is sort of an online war that goes on. And I think it's very important to try to make sure that uh, you don't 
underestimate your opponent's capabilities and you don't play all your cards at once. So, so we think we know a lot about what they do because we can see the network, but we may not know all the stuff that's going on. And I think what's interesting is that um, you know, this was a this and, and if you there's a this I think this was a New York Times article, but there's a sort of Macedonian kids who are making all the, the Trump pages. I mean, they're you know they said after Trump's gone, we'll go on and work on healthcare stuff. I mean, there, there's a whole racket around sort of this sort of fake news thing, and it's it's a business. It's if you remember, we had spam, and then the spam filters came, and then the spammers moved to uh, manipulating search results, and then that sort of got shut down. So they're now doing fake news, but this is actually a business, right? And so and and it's a Business where you you have there's a lot of skill there's a lot of craft and 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 that that and fed, it's funded because they get advertising revenue that, that's right and so you can you know there's the advertising revenue racket but there's also government funded versions of that and um, and it's all it's it. all and so the do you think the same. Russians were funding some of that well. I, I, I don't know. I read the New York Times, and, and, they, and they seem to think so. I'm on the board of the New York Times, I'll just disclose. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, it, but there's a lot of evidence that they, they, they do. And it's, I think, you know, in the modern sort of cyber warfare sort of field, I, I think this is, a, this is sort of a, a very legitimate weapon that you would use if you could, I think. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, MIT Media Lab Director Joey Ito and Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. Ito wrote the book Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. Later in the show, Ito talks about his involvement in a grassroots citizen science effort that helped people in Fukushima. He joined what he calls a ragtag team of kids to help report critical radiation levels following the 2011 earthquake. Now, back to the episode. The discussion about fake news continues. Here's Walter Isaacson. It seems to have been used mainly by what I'll call the alt-right, mm -hmm. which is a amorphous term, Russians and Macedonians, yeah. you know, for separate reasons. Uh, are those the people who dominate this space? I, I, you know, I think that a lot of people know these tools. I think, you know, Anonymous knows these tools. Mm -hmm. The Occupy kids know these tools. The Bernie Sanders kids know these tools. So these, are, these aren't, you know, some special secret things like the hacking tools. I mean, th those are a little bit more expensive and harder to use. I think a lot of the sophisticated social media stuff you know, you, you, it's sort of common. I think what happened Wait, was... When you say tools, I always thought it was mainly um, finger power, meaning people have to sit at keyboards so, and do things. Is there so some... The, well, there, there, there's tools? tactics and strategies. So yeah. if you look like at um, Coney 2012, you know, they, they, they had a lot of people that are in, a dis in distributed places uh, tweet out to massive people with Twitter followers at the same time to try to get things going. Or for instance, trending terms, yeah. if you change it a little bit, it's more likely to become a trending topic. Or if you look at some of these sites, they're, they're actively recruiting people with lots of Twitter followers because it, the more organic it looks, the harder it is for the algorithm to filter them out. So there's 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 trade craft and yeah. yeah. That's what I meant. It's more trade craft That's right. yeah. than a technological like I assume a virus or a hack is a big technological tool. 
This yeah. is just tradecraft. Yeah, right? and, and I, I, would, I would think that there's some um, bots and other things. I mean, we at, at the Media Lab, we're now looking at the tradecraft out there, and we're now trying to create bots that can help counteract those things. And so, um, so, so obviously the platforms are going to start working on defense systems, but we can also independently come up with defense systems. We can create uh, bots that behave like humans that go around and help try to counteract these things. So, so one of the key things, and we, we can talk about this more when we, if we talk about AI, is you know, there, there's, the, there's, there's these, these people doing this thing. They're the platforms with their algorithms. But we can also create institutions that have algorithms that go after and try to counteract both some of the biases in the platforms as well as some of the biases in the people. So, the, so I think a lot of the, this, this, this playing field is going to be less about sort of passing rules and laws because it's moving so quickly and more about um, how these players are going to be developed. Sort of like the spam war or anything else. Yeah, develop defenses. Yeah. So you work with Charlie Firestone and New York Times or whatever. How, what tools ca uh, can be and are being developed so that fake news can be counteracted and real news advantaged? Well, so all of the platforms are working on them, right? So Facebook announced this way to sort of mark fake news. Google's been already for a while working on this uh, 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 platform that takes, uh, you know, uh, bullying comments out of, out of uh, the, the, the conversations. And I think the New York Times is going to try using it. I think YouTube's going to try using it. Yeah, but it. let me just say one thing. Yeah. I was looking at um, the immigration, you know, travel ban, mm -hmm. et cetera, and the firing of the assistant attorney general, or acting yeah. attorney general. And I did Google News, and the first news organization they had was Russia Today. Yeah. Came up first. <laughs> well, it doesn't work very well yet. I mean, I, I, think, I, 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 think, I think you have to try to remember back. So it's going to have two, two things. If you remember back well, if Google to, can't do it, how are we going to? I mean, they're not, well, aren't they yeah. smart at Google and not evil? <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Uh, well, it, it, spam took a little while. And if you remember when spam was out there, there were all these people said, oh, you know, we're just going to have to shut down the internet. Or we're going to have to make everybody use uh, government ID in order to connect to the internet. And it took a while. Um, but, but, but one thing I will also note is that you still remember, you still know that today sometimes email ends up in the spam folder, right? And, and, and I think in, in an interesting way, the meta question is going to be, you know, is the spam filter version on fake news going to stifle a certain kind of communication? And the, the, the other thing is that, you know, media is very different from personal communication. So, so you know, Zuckerberg famously st stood up and, and said he's, Facebook is not a media and it's, we, I'm not an editor, right? And so, so it's one thing to sort of help people clean up their inboxes. It's going to be a different thing for people to clean up your news, right? So I think this is going to be, uh, there'll be an algorithmic war. Things will get better. But I think some of the sort of the, the, the consequences of that are. To what extent can you apply artificial intelligence technologies to do this task? I think a lot. I think you can, uh, you can apply it. Um, and I think that uh, the people who will try to uh, uh, have countermeasures to continue to go after it, it'll be an arms race. I think the, the, I don't know if it's good news, but I think Google and Facebook have more firepower um, on AI than uh, most of the people who are going to be trying to game the system. And so, um, because if you remember, even with the search results, the, the spammy sites have mostly disappeared, not completely. I mean, you still get the wrong sites, but that it's but it's less intentional, and so so I, I think that that we'll probably see an algorithm that that eliminates a lot of this stuff. But how would that be built? That algorithm based on 
my own choices or so, so I think yours? The, or? Well, what I think Facebook is currently doing is they're going to try to deploy something where you, you flag it. And then they and then sort of human flagging trains the so machine. So there would be a hope that there would be more people like us flagging than Macedonian teenagers paid by Russia flagging. I, I think that's the that's the first pass. Um, I think what what they do, for instance, on on search results, they'll they can they, they'll look at the URL, how long the site's been around, who's linking to it, and you can do all kinds of. Um, okay test to see if a site is actually legitimate, which they, it doesn't appear looking at the results that they're doing right now on the Facebook sites. Right. If, um, without revealing anything you do as a board member of the New York Times, what would you advise the New York Times uh, that they should be doing? Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, technologically. I mean, what, what tools do you explain to them? Yeah, so, so I, I think that the New York Times and all the mainstream media, so at the Media Lab, we created this tool during the election that showed what the mainstream media was writing, what Twitter people were saying on Twitter, and what the campaigns were saying, and we made it available for free to all the journalists. But it didn't seem to prevent them from completely ignoring what people were talking about or listening to the people who were influential in the campaign. So, so one thing I would suggest is that they use these tools. Um, we're this is going to be slightly getting ahead of myself because we haven't announced it yet. But we're, we'd, I'd love to create a fellowship for just like we've been training data scientists at the New York Times, we've got a lot of them now. They're very good at visualization and data analytics. There's a social media version of that. I mean, I think that what journalists should be doing is realizing uh, what, what, what the battlefield looks like. And the fact that when the New York Times posts something, how does that affect things? Because I think what, what you know, again, if you see corruption, you used to be able to write about it and somebody go after them. And so just writing about it was sort of the last thing you did. But and, and, and then we've gotten to the point where you look at metrics to see, okay, which, which pages are getting a lot of traffic? Well, if you're getting a lot of traffic because some alt-right site is making fun of you, that's very different than getting traffic because everybody's sharing because it's a good idea. So sort of understanding the effect of what you're writing, I think, is another thing that we have tools for, but they don't use yet. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. In today's show, Joey Ito from the MIT Media Lab and Walter Isaacson, president of the Aspen Institute. If you like today's show, check out Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. How are mega changes around computing power, the global economy, and the environment affecting the way we live? Author and journalist Tom Friedman sits down with Walter Isaacson to talk about how to keep up in a quickly changing world. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's show. Uh, what did you learn from the Japanese earthquake? So, the, well, I, I was involved, well, I was in the US uh, applying, uh, doing the interview at the Media Lab, and so I was away from my family. Um, what I learned first was that the government and the power companies' plans completely failed because they had, they had never anticipated that something like this would happen, so they had no plan, and all the plans they had didn't work. And we found a bunch of people online, and I was trying to get, collect data and then share the data on the radiation uh, fallout because our house was sort of in the line of where the cloud was going. Um, but what we were able to do was to be able to put together sort of a ragtag team of kids to design Geiger counters, deploy them, get them on cars, drive around. We have over 50 million uh, data points now. 
And we became the single largest source of public uh, measurements in the world. And today, now we're talking to EDF and and even the Department. When you of say we, so, so, so what, what was this consortium? So, so it was a weird bunch of concerned people. But what what was neat was we were able to go. So like Ray Ozzy had just left Microsoft and was looking for something to do. Was Ray Ozzy invented uh, uh, notes and notes? Yeah, I mean collaborative uh, software tools. Collaborative software calling. tools. We happened to find the guy that did the instrumentation for Three Mile Island. We happened to find somebody who knew how to do uh, high energy. Uh, high voltage power systems for Geiger counters. So then we found somebody that was good at maps. We found an ideal person. So we were able to pull all of these people from the network, and everybody volunteered, and we were able to put together with almost no money a nonprofit team that could then deploy um, these sensors. And we would we go to these like in the, right after the earthquake, the the government folks were coming in hazmat suits to people's houses, measuring, and and leaving, and and they said well, we can't tell you your readings because the government regulations. And, and then we would have these kids who were, you know, these foreigners from, um, who were, had these funny T-shirts, and they'd come in, they'd measure, and they say, oh, well, it looks like cesium is stuck to your roof, so the kids on the top floor are getting four times as much exposure. Maybe we move them down. And then there's a pile of cesium at this drain pipe. And then the other thing is that the Geiger counters that are officially allowed in Japan only measure gamma. Gamma is the stuff that will go through walls. Well, alpha and beta, which is what you worry about because you can ingest it, since it doesn't go through walls, most of the Geiger counters, that, for, or all of them that were for sale in Japan, blocked alpha and beta because it wasn't considered a valid measurement. But it's, then those Geiger counters become nearly useless when you're actually trying to decontaminate. So, but it was because there's the assumption was that, well, you would never have radiation in a place where ingestion would be a problem. But anyway, so what we do is we teach these people how to use these Geiger counters that we designed to decontaminate their house. And my favorite little moment was there was a group of, um, and Fukushima is kind of a insular group. They don't usually hang out with foreigners. So, so they said, okay, we've created a nonprofit. You've come when the government failed us, and you've helped us so much that now if a disaster happens in another country, we will go this time and say, we're from Fukushima. We're here to help. And so mm -hmm. this kind of emergent citizen-to-citizen -citizen, uh, science was tremendous. And, and we had lots of academics criticizing us because we were sort of like rogue. They're, they've all now joined us. But we explained at a higher level how... I mean, what are the lessons you draw from this yeah. on pull versus push, yeah. emergence? So, so I think there's a couple key things. So with the internet now, you can usually pull people in when you need them. And in fact, the fact that Ray happened to be free, the fact that we could just sort of ping and get all the experts, we didn't, because we, we start, we knew nothing about radiation or measurement the minute the, the earthquake happened. A month later, we were ahead of everybody else, every NGO, every government agency. And because the government agencies had all these plans, but everything was outdated. So it's kind of like if you learn a programming language that you might use 10 years from now, it's unlikely to be the right one. But so you basically disrupted government agencies because you were more mm -hmm. flexible and quick. I mean, how was that disrupted? Um, McKinsey and Company, or Booz yeah. Allen, or yeah. Well, I don't know exactly about McKinsey. I mean, the Booz sense Allen, that you could just crowdsource and pull yeah. people together to do projects and, that and, normally took big in right. And, and 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 also, I think a couple of key things is the internet. You think of as 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 data, but we were able to source hardware, design hardware, distribute hardware, mobilize kids, and 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 and, and well, I'll say one other thing that was that we found was interesting was that. The government, and this is sort of slightly off the record, but the government came to us a couple of years later and said, could you actually verify our data? Because they don't trust our data yeah. anymore, but they trust you. And, and this trust thing was really interesting, too, where you know, these huge authorities, well, because they failed, but these huge authorities had lost trust. And even though they sent their best and their brightest in, 
to sort of fix the situation, they had lost the trust. And in fact, we wrote a report last year, a 190-page report, where half of it was critical, but half of it was saying, you know, these guys are actually doing the right thing, um, and you're, you should trust them. And so what, what happened is now we're helping to rebuild trust in some of these institutions. And so, so, you know, so getting back to these McKinsey and so on, I mean, in a weird way, we did what Donald Trump did, which is kind of like wing it. But you can wing it if, you, uh, if you've got the ability to reach people and grab them as you need them. And then when you don't need them anymore, throw them back. And because we, weren't, we didn't have a lot of money and because we didn't have a lot of institutional structure, um, we, we, were, we were very, very agile. Where the government had all this structure, all this uh, you know, um, process that just slowed them down. How would you take on the challenge of cybersecurity using these lessons? So this is a good question. I mean, I think that uh, you know, cybersecurity is a, a, a much longer conversation at some level because you're never as you're never secure until your hardware is secure, and hardware and sort of the making of chips and the building of the, the, the devices, and as well as these operating systems. There's some fundamental problems with the way that supply chain works, and. Um, you know, there's some. I, I love the videos on on, on YouTube now. These um, Chinese kids who, who I was just watching one where you know he 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 grinds the back of the uh, CPU in the um, iPhone to get to the um, you know supposedly secret um, EEPROM that stores like the data ID, the rollback controller, and and somehow they figured out how to physically get access to a CPU, and then and then the, and then the the, the demo is really great because it's like oh it's, they're fixing a broken iPhone which is throwing an error, but the error the fixing of that error basically proves that if this kid wanted to he could take a bricked iPhone and change the ID right and and yeah but cybersecurity is going to require uh, more of a not strength but resilience, and, right? No, that's, that's right. So I guess I guess that that yeah. I think to your point, I think that we have to assume that at some price, anybody can get into anything, right? right? And 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 it's really more like an economics thing. And so and and there is a market for zero to exploits, which are basically exploits that the the device makers don't know about. And at some price, you can always get in. And so you have to assume that, first of all, you'll be compromised at some point, and how quickly can you recover. But also, you start to have to, you really have to think about what your threat models are, um, how valuable are those, uh, those how, how much money would those threats pay to get in, and then you can start to figure out um, how likely you are uh, to uh, be attacked. One of the problems right now is it is fairly asymmetrical, where um, usually the cost of the attack is less than the value of the thing that you have if, you're, if you've got something important going on. And so, so to, yeah, so this is the resilience over strength. I think you have to worry more about or work more on how you recover from failures with an assumption that you will be penetrated rather than trying to build a system that no one can break into. Now, if we were building the internet from scratch now, uh, you have an internet that's basically a packet switch network. The packets are encoded with their destination but not with their origin. Mm -hmm. uh, would there be a way to create a secure packet switch network in which you knew where the packets were coming from and we were safer? You could, but I, I don't really think that that question is a very uh, uh, helpful one. And the reason I would say that is that um, if you were building it from scratch is the word that I, because we didn't build it from scratch and that's why it worked. You know, and I think that, right. I mean, well, we, we. Well, you have at MIT, not in your lab, but yeah. the other one, 
Howard Schroeder's lab, something called clean slate, which is right, what right. I mean. If you're building with a clean I, slate. I see. Yeah. And, and, and my, my personal view is that the, the internet is really about a community of technical people who design and manage and run the system. And it's the community of people more than the specific technology. So we've, we've created IPv6. We've created secure DNS. We've got lots of tools that make total sense but aren't deployed because people aren't going to adopt, adopt it. I don't think we will see a massive switch away from uh, the current internet, at least very easily. It'll be, it'll be very Will democracy expensive. survive the internet? I think, I think we'll get a different kind of democracy. You know, I think that each media form has challenged and changed the way democracy exists. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be the biggest shift in democracy. Um, I think that what we saw with, with the, this recent election is, is really the first internet election. Um, or might turn into a, more than just an election. Uh, but I think that AI will um, bring a, a much bigger challenge than what we've Ow. seen so far. Um, because what we'll see is machines are going to be uh, much harder to track. Like right now, I can, we can sort of see what everybody's doing. Um, and, I can sort, and, and the New York Times can do a story about the Russian agency and kind of get it right. But once the machines are going in, going very quickly, and going in, 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 and you've got you know machines that uh, that run organizations that have finances that are talking to each other on encrypted sy systems. You know, talk about end-to-end -end encryption between people. You have machines sort of learning from each other, talking to each other, and leaving us out of the loop. Well, and but like you, you we could generate a machine and just let it go, and um, and it would be very hard, first of all, to figure out whose machine it was. Um, machine meaning an algorithm on the network or something like that. Um, and just like the asymmetric warfare that we get in the, in the terror attacks, um, you could imagine, um, um, again, I don't want you to imagine too much because, it, it, because I think that it's still pure speculation on how the system is going to be. I, I personally believe that, that we're not going to see one huge dominant AI. I think we're going to see lots of machines with lots of algorithms that will look more like a society. Of, of, of systems or, or a market of systems. The, the, I think the best thing to look at is, is corporations. Corporations are weirdly like AIs because they're, they're smarter than the sum of its parts. They have the ability to manipulate um, lawmaking and, and, and move things around. And, and they're very hard to manage because they're kind of opaque. But you still can kind of. Yeah, but we know who and where the corporation is. You're saying we're not going to know who and so, where so, the. So, so if, yeah, so if you imagine a corporation where it's even is. more opaque, can move more quickly. And then with if you throw in cryptocurrencies, could start to move assets around that are harder to track. So your basic answer to whether democracy can survive the internet is no. Well, it will be, again, it will be, very, so, so imagine, so let me turn this around to sort of a slightly more positive but a weird question. So, so imagine that you have an extended intelligence for every function, doctors, politicians, uh, you know, uh, uh, security advisors, where you have a machine. Making war. Well, who, 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 who give you great advice, right? So just say, hey, and the, the, the problem with a lot of these machines is they can't, you can't really tell exactly why they're right because they're like with deep learning. So for instance, they may diagnose a patient more accurately by let's say 80 times than the doctor. 
but you don't know why, but sometimes it's always right. Well, you're going to tend to trust the machine. And I think one of the sort of interesting things, I think there's a Hong Kong fund now that has a partner that's a machine, right? And so as you start to get these very sophisticated um, uh, algorithms um, giving you advice that tends to be correct, but you can't really un they can't really explain to you why, although there are systems that are trying to explain why, and that's another field of research. Um, I think people, even if they're still in charge, their agency, like kind of like the, the pilot's agency now with autopilot getting better and better, starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner. So what is a democracy? So we gradually surrender control even well, though. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a question. That's the question. I don't know. You know. I think that what will happen is you could easily see a system where, but like even today, it, when the government's functioning properly, every citizen doesn't try to get their head around everything. They kind of assume that something's taking care of stuff, and they go about their daily life. So if you imagine and you replace the government and you replace some of these big companies and you say the, a lot of the churning of thought in these systems, whether it's thinking about the, how to model climate change or the, the, the military strategy in some country, and it's mostly operated by a machine, um, you will start to see, I think, us possibly becoming somewhat complacent in, in, in our civics, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a question about how, how it evolves. The flip side is you, you could imagine machines having um, conflicts and having discussions and, and actually informing different people and having more robust debate. Um, you know, I, so it's not clear exactly. And, and, and the other thing I would say is I think in machine learning you have you know, a number of areas where people are working on breakthroughs. And depending on which breakthroughs come first and in what order and at what time, the capability and the style in which these machines get deployed will be different. But you've said you're a little bit less worried about what's called the singularity, uh -huh. i.e. that moment when machines quit needing us that much and take over from us. Then your West Coast counterparts, a lot of them are always yeah. preaching the fear of the singularity. You, why do you not think that? It seems like you think that's a problem. Well, so, so what I'm, when I'm talking about the, these systems, um, they're, they're very dedicated systems. So it will be the cancer diagnostic system or the autopilot or the stock trading system. These aren't, the, the, the singularity is about a machine that becomes a super intelligence that um, is able to teach itself and is so smart that sort of they decide that humans really aren't really that important. Actually, the environment would be better without them, and they just get rid of the humans, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, we're still talking, I'm talking about machines that are still part of our collective intelligence. They become pieces in our, in our system. But I don't, I don't think that, that the first, what I'm more concerned about is that those systems are, turn out to be faulty or stupid or biased, uh, is, and, and that our society becomes dysfunctional more than sort of a, a bunch of terminators that want to get rid of carbon life forms, which is, yeah. which is a, a this, your West Coast singularity yeah, some of them, yeah. are worried about. Joey Ito is an author and entrepreneur. He also runs the MIT Media Lab. He's being interviewed by Aspen Institute President and CEO Walter Isaacson. Their talk was held in January as part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Here's a member of the audience with a question. Um, the Media Lab has had a couple of efforts that uh, have tried to work to empower people with data because the idea being that if data is really the primary input to all of these AI and machine learning systems that if individuals, whether it's the lawyer or the average citizen, can show up with sort of the competitively better set of data, that that may be one of the things that balances this out. Um, but it's been pretty unsuccessful so far. It's been very hard. I'd love to get your thoughts on 
what it takes to create real data portability and democratizing data. So, you know, that actually becomes a balancing factor. Yes, I think there's two pieces. You know, I think that privacy, or anything actually, security or privacy or anything, people, the, the commercial entities won't build it unless the people want it, right? And I think that once all of us have at least one person whose life has been destroyed because of a privacy breach, um, it will become a feature that we will want. And we're sort of already starting to want it. And you see Snapchat and other things. Um, uh, so, so I think people have to want it and have to need it. Um, I think that uh, it may be too late. I think we, the, we're, we're going through a period where we've got so much sort of, you know, pollution out there where all your stuff is already out there and we're already exposed that it may get worse before it gets better. But I think on the privacy front, hopefully people will wake up and realize that they need it. And, and if you look at Germany, for instance, because they suffered so much uh, during the, you know, during the Holocaust and the war with, with, with their data being used against them, they're, they're very diligent about that. So they, they are much more open to, for instance, the Chaos Communication Congress and the Communication Club, which are a bunch of hackers that attack voting machines, attack systems, and they realize that they need uh, this sort of hacker group to keep them in check. Whereas in the US, it doesn't, because I don't think we've had that experience. Um, I, I, I think one of the tricky parts, and to bring it back to AI, is that um, because there's so much commercial value in machine learning, and because um, there, it's still kind of a highly skilled labor force, um, any PhD like postdoc graduate is getting sort of millions of dollars as their offers from these big um, commercial entities. And, and small businesses and academia can't afford the kind of um, salaries that these guys are getting. And so what you see is you see really kind of a monopoly. And, and they get the resources and the community. So, so you see the smartest people in machine learning, not all of them, but most of them, aggregating into the big companies. Now, they're self-aware of that. And this is why they've set up the partnership in AI. And, and many of these people are hoping to try to do things in a uh, conscientious and ethical way. My, my, my sort of um, point, though, is that even if you have all the best intentions, if you're in a room full of computer scientists and you're trying to figure out the right way to do something, you're not going to have the sophisticated. So, so we have uh, you know, um, a young woman um, in, in our lab, um, Joy um, Bulawini, and she's African-American. And she realized that the facial recognition software doesn't recognize her face. It only works for white people, right? So, and it's the basic uh, uh, tool that's used in a lot of the facial recognition systems that other people use. Well, if you're in a room full of white people, you're not going to be testing it on non-white people because there aren't any. And so, and then, and then other questions like, well, what's the legal ramification? Like, what, how would, how would um, law function if an AI were able to do this and how to do that? And so, 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 so those sorts of questions need to be asked when you're designing the tool. And right now, we're, what we're doing is we're tacking that on at the end. So here's this cool tool we've built. What do you guys think of it? Rather than sort of integrating that, that in. And, and, and sensibilities around privacy are one thing, but, but just all kinds of sensibilities around law, around um, social things, interactions. I mean, and, and our, so what we do at the media, and what we're hoping to do is and we're diving headfirst into areas that are somewhat creepy and sensitive. Like we're, we're, we're deploying robots into um, pediatric wards, and, we're, we're, we're in the, and kids love to interact with robots, actually more than they like to interact with, with nurses. And they'll take their medicine, and then we can start to look at the body language, and then we can get influence a kid based on the body language of, of the robot. So in Cynthia's group, she ha she's noticed that back-channeling, so if I'm talking to you, and you're in a not, well, you just nodded, so adults nod, 100% of the time. Kids only nod 30% of the time. And if you make a robot that behaves more like a kid, 
Um, and the body language is more like a kid. The kid's more likely to trust it. So you can start to manipulate people. And then the question is, what are the ethics around it? What should the technology be? Like, you can get kids to have better learning outcomes if you model um, good uh, 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 mental modes. But, but it's also kind of, what's the consent for that, right? So if you're just trying to get people to do their alphabets better, that's one thing. But if you're trying to get a, a kid to be you know, more politically um, uh, uh, conservative, that may be not a good thing. And so, so we're, we're, but those conversations are important. And I, I, th I think we, we haven't had enough. But yeah. So I'm interested in uh, the issue of bad memes, basically as viruses on the body politics. So Nazism, racism, violent extremism. Um, and how do we think about them in terms, if you look at it as a virus uh, and, and address mm -hmm. trying to rid ourselves of really bad memes for society? So, so, so I think this is actually that biological metaphor you use is actually pretty, pretty good because you can look at a pattern of a, the dissemination of a meme, like who's retweeting it, how is it going, how is it moving, how fast it's going, and you can pretty quickly identify, even if you don't see the word, uh, whether this is one of those memes, right? And then we've also been able to, and this, this isn't published yet, so I'll be a little vague, but we'll publish it soon. We've also been able to start to intervene, um, create bots that go in and start to um, attack these, these memes, or, or even how do you attack fake news when you're not the platform. And, and, and there's some traction around that. But what's going to happen is we're going to deploy these systems, the memes will slow down, the meme makers will route around it. And so, so it really is like trying to find a cure for cancer. The, the cancer is going to continue to evolve. We're going to try to continue to evolve. A, with it, and and but 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 I think th this current election caught a bunch of people off guard. Um, they didn't realize it was going to be so powerful. Now a lot of people are paying attention. Um, my only concern is that I think whether we're talking about the Democratic Party or mainstream media, the people in charge just don't get it intuitively. They don't understand that this is a this is the kind of warfare that that, that they're actually they are the battlefield. The, the younger kids get it. Younger kids. The, 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 there are people in all these organizations that get it. So so one of the questions is: Are these institutions going to empower? Um, this new kind of behavior. And it is weird. It's really like red coats saying, okay, let's go do guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and they may have to, a few people in their ranks that sort of, you know, actually, I know how to do that. Um, but, but, it, but you have to organize it in a very different way. And, and, and again, this gets back to the book. It has to be emergent. You have to pull. You have to be ready to give up control. I mean, you, you kind of have to sort of try these systems, be iterative, and not be and be content not getting exactly what you wanted, but to be you know um, ending up roughly in the direction you want to go. Yeah, I'm a concerned citizen with a very reactionary congressman, concerned mm -hmm. about healthcare. How do I get information, the data, to be able to go to that congressman's office and say, here's how many people in your district are taking advantage of the Affordable Care Act or other features of it? With all this information, how does the ordinary citizen who wants to do something get access to it? There are a number of efforts around open data. Um, some of them are non-commercial. Some of them are commercial. Um, I'll, I'd say there's two things. I think one is so. So I, I'm an investor. So this I, I'll disclose my my my. Uh, uh, thing, uh, conflict. But there's a, there's a company called Nuna Health um, that's run by a, a young woman named Ginny Kim, who's, uh, you know, her, her brother was an a, a epileptic autistic kid, and she was sort of saved by Medicaid, you know, and if it were, and so she's built this amazing uh, 
trove of data, taking all of the Medicaid data and also bringing in all these health records to really start to understand how these systems work, how to optimize them, and then try to make this data available for people. Because right now, one of the biggest problems is that all the data is out there, but, but as a normal person, you can't make sense of it. And one of the problems is somewhat political because, you know, if you, if you start to show the inefficiencies, somebody's inefficiency is somebody's revenue, right? So, so, so I think one of the problems is when you try to really tr make things transparent, there's always going to be some resistance. So, so it's, it, I think at the, at the sort of national level, it's, it's, it's obviously highly political. I think there's another way that um, you can go after this, which is um, I think Code for America is doing a lot of great work. Uh, you see the Presidential Innovation Fellows. Um, there are a lot of uh, Silicon Valley types, not just from Silicon Valley, but really, really great data scientists and engineers who go in for a year or two of service, where they work with local governments, they work in some of these big government agencies and really do an amazing job of trying to clean up the data, make the data av available. And I think it's become quite a thing. Um, to say, okay, I'm a data scientist. I made a lot of money at, at, at Google or Facebook. I'm going to go uh, try to do the right thing. And and you see this now happening in, in in local governments, but you also see it in the federal government. Hopefully, they'll leave some of this in the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, but 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 I think I see a lot of uh, I see a, some light there. I do fear that right now there's a lot of um, a suppression of of open. There was a great open data movement that was on its way. It's starting to be suppressed, especially around climate change. Um, but 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 I I. I I think there's a there's an upward trajectory, and the government procurement also after healthcare.gov, and, and again, Jimmy Ginny was one of the people who went in and fixed healthcare.gov. They look, we're looking over these kids' shoulders and realize, oh, actually, in fact, we can be like Silicon Valley. We don't have to use these old government contractor systems. We can use these open data systems that that are designed in a much more uh, usable and agile way. So I I hope that if the trend continues generally, that um, data will become much more available. Returning to your comments about the people in charge really don't get it. Uh, can you share some thoughts on, on how we can prepare leaders to lead more effectively in this environment? I'm going to be, I'm just, I'm biased, so I'll, I'll just say a biased comment. I, you know, I think that when, when, we, when I work at the Media Lab, I assume that uh, the people in the lab uh, understand a lot more and can move more quickly than I ever can. And so we have 450 projects, 750 people, um, and none of them ask me permission for anything. Except, well, some things, but, but they don't have to ask permission to start any one of these projects. And my job is to create a culture of, I call it a culture of disobedience robustness, where they can be disobedient, they should be disobedient, they should question authority, think for themselves, do the right thing, but their value should be to you know, not hurt the community, to keep this thing going. And so, and, and part of it is my background is I was a disc jockey for a while. And, and I realized as a disc jockey, I could change the music and I could get you know, the, the Hispanic kids to the bar. I can get the, the, the University of Chicago kids to sit down. I can get these kids out. I can get them dr drinking. And, and by just tweaking the music, I can actually manage the floor. And so um, That's much a more- That's wonderful phrase. Yeah, much more than sort of blaring something on, on, on a megaphone, right? So, so that's the way I think about managing the media lab is how can I keep the culture pointed in the right direction, like embracing diversity, respect for each other, but able to argue and dis disobey, but also giving them tremendous permission to go out and do the right thing because I trust that we're all making the same movie in our head. We're all headed roughly in the same direction. That's all I care about. And then I give everybody complete permission and complete autonomy. And, it, and it's worked for 30 years. This is how Nicholas set it up when he started was this kind of 
um, sort of very, and, and, and I, we had a very funny thing where we, Nicholas was, uh, Nicholas Negroponte, the founder was, we were doing a search for faculty, he said, okay, uh, you have to be proficient in two orthogonal fields, you can't be able to get a job in any other institution to do what you want to do, and we call, we're going to call it Professor of Other. And we were looking at a candidate that we all kind of loved, and Nicholas said, you know, that's not other, that's another. You know? and, and the whole notion that you embrace other, because other is really scary for most organizations. So if you can create a system where other is embraced, I think it gives you a real resist, resilience, and then that allows you to shift course very quickly. So, so, but it takes a lot of confidence, and it also takes a certain adherence to core principles. And so, so, so again, I, 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 it may not work for everybody, but for, for us it seems to have worked for a while. Oh, I love the phrase, by the way, just by tweaking the music, I can manage yeah. the floor. Joey, thank you. Thank you, Walter. That was awesome. Joey Ito wrote the book, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. He also directs the MIT Media Lab. Walter Isaacson is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held in Washington, D.C. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.